Hello everyone and welcome to the Three-Sided Coin podcast. This podcast is a dynamic platform that discusses topics related to African political economy and development. It also specifically profiles young African researchers, policymakers, activists and people in industry who are making waves and are positively contributing to the rethinking of the African narrative. Um, today we're going to be speaking to two people about international relations theory um, intervention from South Africa, also intervention and international relations responses to crises in Africa. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the political crisis in Zimbabwe right now. Um, so I will give a brief background. Um, there has been some violent repression ahead of planned, well, there were planned nationwide protests in support of, um, well, anti-corruption um, and some of the actions that the state had taken during COVID-19, um, the resilience efforts. And so this planning of this process was met with violent repression. Um, and this political situation has prompted discussion regarding the need for solidarity and action in the form of intervention from neighboring states, organizations such as SADC and the African Union. Um, but these actors have historically been constrained by political strategies like non-interference, non-violence, and this understanding of like a fraternity. So this podcast today would like to discuss the relational political strategies that are used by states in Africa to assist during times of conflict. Specifically, we're going to be asking whether these strategies are effective or if they need to be rethought. So can we please have our two speakers for today briefly introduce themselves before presenting their own thoughts on this topic and then afterwards we'll have like an exchange and commentary on some of the things that were presented and then I will open it up to some of the questions that I've written prior and we can discuss that for a while before wrapping it up. Okay um, first can you hear me? Yes we can hear you. Okay first and foremost um, happy Women's Day to the South African female community. Um, my name is um, Bulen Zege Leonard I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Cape Town, where I'm looking at uh, issues pertaining to democratization in uh, Francophone West Africa. Um, I am originally from Cameroon, so I have uh, West and Central African insight into um, how um, you know, um, political governance strategies are carried out in that part of the world. But then I've done a, a lot of my studies in South Africa, in the Southern African region uh, in general. So that helps me to understand um, you know, some of the dynamics which are in place. And um, in addition, I work part-time as, um, as a research analyst for a uh, risk consulting firm based in London called Africa Risk Consulting. So um, I'm hoping that I'll be able to use um, this knowledge to just be able to contribute in my own small way to this platform and to the sharing I have ideas, which uh, Seho has, um, you know, um, um, enabled us to uh, have uh, on, on, on this beautiful day. Thank you for that. Um, can you go into some of your thoughts regarding the topic in general? Okay, um, well, yeah, as we just talked about, you know, um, Zimbabwe is undergoing another spate of, uh, you know, state orchestrated uh, repression against its citizens. And um, 
what's interesting is that, you know, right now Zimbabwe is being afflicted by um, a three-pronged crisis. That is um, an economic crisis, uh, which has been going on for uh, <laughs> well over a generation now, but then um, I think it's entered another phase with the, you know, um, under President Malangwa. President Emerson, please. Uh, I don't like the butcher name, so I'm just going to say President Emerson. Um, uh, it's under, entered another phase with the um, with the hyperinflation and everything that's associated now with the, um, the economic downturn which countries are experiencing because of COVID-19. You have the health crisis, which is um, going on as well because of COVID-19, and also the socio-political crisis, um, which has reemerged because I think Zimbabwe, as you know, um, the transition that occurred for, um, from President Mugabe to President Emerson, um, it just a changing of individuals. It wasn't a change in you know, the system. And even within the system, you've seen a significant number amount of cracks, which we'll talk about as the um, discussion evolves. But what I wanted to point to is that uh, we've been talking about international interventions and what is the role of SADC. And I think one thing we have to understand about SADC is that unlike it's very peculiar in terms of its political structures um, compared to the rest of Africa, because if you look at the SADC region, the countries which are constitutional democracies, only three of them are not ruled by independence era or liberation struggle parties. And these three countries are Malawi, DRC, and Zambia. So what this, what this underscores is that the institutions which are leading these countries have a shared ideological, historical, have a shared ideological as well as historical trajectory. Their party structures and party discipline are more or less um, on, 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 on the same um, safe wavelength. And, you know, they also have shared challenges which they've experienced over time. And as a result, they've developed a certain amount of camaraderie, which makes it difficult for the countries to hold each other accountable when they transgress in different ways against their citizens. And what's very interesting in that regard is that I compare it to say um, ECOWAS and um, the economic community of West African states where none of the independence era parties are still in power. And I think because of that, there isn't some sort of camaraderie that exists and there's a greater uh, propensity for countries to hold one another to account. Um, now, owing to that, we've seen that even though these um, liberation, former liberation movements um, and independence era parties are in control across um, Southern African constitutional democracies, what makes Zimbabwe stand out is that the power structure relationships have, the, the, the relationship between the various structures of power has not evolved significantly, whereby you still have the state security apparatus which is what one leads would call a tutelary power. That is an institution which is involved in the day-to-day -day, um, decision-making of the country, but is non-elected. It still has a very primary role to play in the decision-making state. You don't have that in South Africa, right? Whereby the military and the security apparatus after apartheid, you know, they went into just carrying out matters pertaining to state security. And we've seen that, you know, um, that enables the emergence of what we call deep state um, a deep state status, whereby, you know, is the military which has um, a very um, overriding role in the way that daily activities are carried out. And, you know, it's very difficult to hold them account and even the politicians, because now the politicians are able to derive their legitimacy from, you know, from the role of the military. I mean, we just saw um, a couple of years ago how the Operation Restore Hope, per se, um, it was 
it was a military coup. They said it's a coup, not a coup. But then, you know, in retrospect, or even at that point in time, it was a full-scale coup. And, you know, because of that role, which the Zimbabwean security sources have had, um, you know, even in the new dispensation, which President Emerson had promised he would undertake, we've seen that from, you know, when in the lead up to the elections, during the election, there was state orchestrated violence. And it was very difficult, you know, to bring to account those who were um, the perpetrators of it. Uh, former President Mutlante, they, they established a commission, but to date, you know, that, that was just much ado and really nothing came about from it. And we've continuously seen there's been a ratcheting up of, you know, violent, um, violent uh, uh, acts against the Zimbabwean citizenry by the security forces. And it's interesting because now, as a result of that, you have a scenario where, you know, the citizenry understands that, okay, you know what, we've had a scenario in the Mugabe, uh, uh, we've had a scenario where, you know, during the Mugabe days, we experienced the worst of the worst. Meanwhile, it's not gotten to this extent where the country is in a due dispensation and there is a need now to bring greater awareness to that situation at hand. And, you know, you had a prominent Zimbabwean journalists, activists, um, you know, people in society who try to protest against that. And then the state has just continued to act in the same manner as they have over the past generations, whenever they've had some sort of opposition brought up against them. So um, I think it would be interesting to see how not just SADC, but then in particular, South Africa. Because when we talk about SADC, yes, while it is um, an organization which brings together all the countries of Southern Africa, unlike other regions, the disproportionate amount of um, influence which South Africa has enables it to be at the forefront. And moreover, I think compared to other regions, South Africa has a degree of legitimacy across the political, economic, and social spheres, as well as in terms of their military strength, which the other regional powers don't possess. So it's going to be very interesting because in the past, we've seen that South Africa, we have to put it bluntly, has had a very lame duck approach. But then now it seems like, you know, with President Ramaphosa as the head of the AU, um, the AU chair, um, and with the very unique circumstances which you know the world and the continent is faced with uh, with respect to the COVID-19 um, pandemic, what is going to be done in that regard? So those are just my opening remarks. Great, thank you so much, Leonard. That was very insightful um, and very interesting. And I think I have a few questions to ask from that, but please can we get Leslie first? All right, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Leslie Mudimu, and I recently completed my master's in development studies at the University of the Witwatersrand. Uh, but I have a background in politics and international, and I studied at UCT. Currently, I am the research coordinator for the uh, South Africa, the Real COVID South Africa project, which is housed at Wits University. And I'm also an ASRI fellow on the 2020 um, Leadership Fellowship uh, Program. So I'm very happy to be a part of this conversation because I do feel like people with our expertise also need to comment on what's been happening in Zimbabwe. So most of what I'll say today will be coming from the perspective of a an international, an international relations scholar and someone who actually has studied foreign policy analysis and also as a citizen who has 
who understands the on the ground issues that are happening in Zimbabwe and the current uh, movement that's been happening um, on social media, which is hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter. So I wanted to start off my points with a quote that um, uh, actually a quote from one of my academic essays when I did foreign policy analysis and I went back to that essay when I was preparing for this because it's, it's, it stood out to me that some of the points I wrote in this essay in 2016 still apply today. So I wrote, at the height of the political crisis in Zimbabwe, many human rights abuses were committed by the state against its citizens. The failure by the South African government to intervene effectively before the situation had escalated is one of the reasons why observers say quiet diplomacy was a failure um, in dealing with Zimbabwe's political impasse. The words that I wrote as a third year politics student, these words still apply. Um, the fact that the... One of the main issues that um, Zimbabwe has faced has been obviously the political instability, which has then gone on to impact social relations, the economic, the, the economy of the country, and the deteriorating healthcare system, which is one of the main things that people have been protesting about. But at the forefront of all of this is the continued um, human rights violations that have happened in Zimbabwe. And this is something we can date back to Mugabe's uh, presidency and even prior to that, and we're currently dealing with it right now. So when it comes to how um, South Africa has dealt with their, how South Africa's foreign policy has been structured in relation to Zimbabwe. A lot of things are, are, are left to be criticized. For example, historically South Africa has always taken a very uh, quiet diplomatic uh, standpoint when it comes to Zimbabwean issues. And for many people, they can date back to the 2007 and 2008 involvement of Tabumbeki in Zimbabwe after the elections. And we would have thought that maybe with um, with the change in leadership that the foreign policy relationship between Zimbabwe and South Africa would change. However, we still continue seeing a very laissez-faire, a very like brotherhood sort of um, relationship between the two countries. And just to like highlight one of Leonard's points, which is something that I also see South Africa's policy, foreign policy in particular, is because they are a regional leader within the SADC region. And on top of that, currently speaking with Sir Ramaphosa as the AU chair, people would expect a more um, firm approach. Well, we've always hoped for a more firm approach. But unfortunately, the South African stance on Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwean issues has always been been very lukewarm and currently considering that it's human rights violations that are taking a standpoint it leaves a lot of people to then now question um the overall the validity of south africa's stance on human rights which is something that they've been championed for and have taken a leadership role in within the SADC region so his the quiet diplomatic approach unfortunately does not work because we also have seen over the years the impact that the crisis in Zimbabwe has had on South Africa itself and we're talking about an influx of foreign um, migrants into South Africa. We've also looked at the issues, for example, just with Zimbabwe paying its debts to South Africa, particularly in terms of the electricity sector, um, ESCOM, uh, issues paying ESCOM. And then we also just have the economic impact, like the economic um, issues in Zimbabwe have impacted South Africa, you know. And that's why it's, 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 a, bit, it's a bit frustrating that the foreign policy approach that is being maintained is still one that's very much quiet and very much um, protecting the brotherhood that is. 
ideally we would have thought that maybe the foreign policy stance would have changed with the creation of the EFF and the inclusion of the EFF in South African politics because they've taken a stance where they promote pan-Africanism and they're very outspoken about some of the issues happening in Zimbabwe right now. So just to bring it back to the foreign policy analysis um, framework, I mean, it's got three levels. The framework has three levels where you look at like the foreign policy decisions from a state level, from an individual level, and from a regional level. When you look at it from a state and a regional level, it's very evident that it would make sense that South Africa uh, take on a very different stance when it comes to um, dealing with Zimbabwe, because uh, the political crisis in the in the country in Zimbabwe also then destabilizes the region. So taking a stance, a very proactive stance on that, would would actually have an impact on how other countries within the SADC region are dealing with uh, the impact, the effects of the Zimbabwean crisis. And then on the state level, South Africa itself is feeding the strain of the uh, situation in Zimbabwe, and unfortunately, it also then results in them having very um, very antagonistic institutional approaches, um, speaking about just the issues, the, the institutionalized xenophobia in this country. So easing that strain would be ideal, would best suit the interests of both South Africa and Zimbabwe. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening. But now on an individual level, you can't remove the fact that the ANC and ZANU-PF have historical ties which continue to be maintained and it's almost like a brotherhood that continues to be maintained but what we see now is that they, I feel the individual level the individual reasons behind the foreign policy approach in uh, South Africa has to Zimbabwe has overshadowed just the logical state and um, regional thoughts, thoughts that need to go into the foreign policy. Great thank you so much for that Leslie. Um, I thought that was also very insightful. And I think that one aspect that I would have never thought of is how non-state um, players like the EFF really can um, start discussion on what it means, like how to change foreign policy or how to change policy in general, because they do have that kind of um, uh, leverage to get those discussions happening. So I thought that was a very insightful aspect alongside all of your other thoughts as well. Um, but I wanted to know if you wanted to respond, anyone to each other's specific presentations, highlight anything or comment um, before I go into some of the questions that I have. I actually wanted to comment on a, a very important point that Leonard brought up about just um, the power structures. Like he mentioned something about power structures that haven't evolved. And um, I wanted to actually um, strengthen that, that point and um, affirm his point that the other issue that, that, that um, Zimbabwe continues to face is that there hasn't, the state hasn't transformed, especially when we talk about the institutionalization of violence and even the security sector, the role of the security sector in Zimbabwe. It's, it's what happened with Zimbabwe is that with after independence, instead of dismantling a very violent anti-black system that was created during the years of Ian Smith's rule and pre-colonial, um, and the years of that Zimbabwe was colonized. And the failure to disrupt those structures is what I feel like we're dealing with the legacy of those structures to this day, because ZANU-PF then went on built on those structures and continued to use those um, security sectors as a way of mitigating any potential um, 
threats from people who were anti-ZANU-PF or wanted to create a democratic state. And unfortunately, obviously, with the coup that was not the coup, it was just building onto that. So it's, uh, it's something that I feel like has been highlighted a lot in the conversations that Zimbabweans are having in trying to understand that the issues that we're currently facing are not just Far, are not far removed from our history and that there's actually a lot of work that will then need to be done uh, reforming the security sector and just dealing with those power structures that never evolved. Great, Leonard, do you want to come in? Yeah, um, yeah. just talking about what uh, Leslie was saying with respect to the um, ANC-ZANU Brotherhood and um, it just relates with what I was talking about with the, the nature of the parties which are in control. It's a very, very important element because what happens is that, you know, the way that these parties interact with each other as well as the individuals, it goes beyond an institutional relationship. It's at a very, very personal level. And I know it's not the same context but then it kind of reminds me of how like the u.s israel relationship is whereby you have a, a big brother of sorts who you know can hold the very troublesome um sibling to account but then that big brother also has a very problematic relationship in the sense that as much as you know you want as much as you want them to hold them to account you know that they'll always take their side so now it's very very interesting how you know every time we look to the anc to you know sort out quote unquote, um, the Zimbabwean problem. But then at the end of the day, we also acknowledge that, you know, the ANC in itself is part of the problem. And then, you know, just mentioning of EFM is also very, very interesting to me because they have a very, very nominal Pan-African, um, Pan-Africanist stance on the way the ANC should engage with the rest of continental leaders. And, you know, what makes me interested is that, you know, the ANC, I mean, the EFF is really, you know, putting out what the youth view on um, Pan-Africanism should be, that is to hold our leaders to account. Meanwhile, the ANC is still taking, you know, the more post-independence, um, the more post-independence liberation struggle narrative where it's like, okay, you know what, in as much as we want to hold each other account, you know, let us hold our brothers by the hand and then we'll talk to them in private. But then as we know, and we see, that hasn't worked out. So um, it's going to be interesting as this conversation goes forward to just be able to relay and link those points together because I think everything that we're saying is really cyclical in the sense that, you know, it just bounces back to one another, one of everything we're saying. Great. Um, thank you for that. Um, and I think that this question that I've been, that has been on my mind after hearing you speak is there's a lot of discussion on the history, right? The historical relationship. And I think, and obviously this approach to foreign policy of non-interference um, is because of his, like a historic understanding. Um, and I think, well, what I would think is that it's because of the colonial um, influence of like being paternal and like, what is it called? Invading other countries, etc. that the ANC wants to avoid. So it would take on this um, non-interference stance. So I'm asking essentially to, let's say, Leslie, um, what it would look like for South Africa to interfere in a way that maintains this non-interference in a very like pan-Africanist and African way. So it wouldn't be like a paternal invasion um, to save the people from the leadership that is... Um, corrupt uh does that make sense it makes sense actually because i've always tried to find the word to um 
I actually was sitting here Googling patri- in my head. I'm like patrimonial, but I don't think that's the right word, but what you're describing about how the politics, like the relationships and politics that we see, um, particularly in Africa is that mother, father, brother, relational sort of relationship between the, the, between the, the institutions and on a, on a regional level, I think that's what we see going on. That's, oh, okay, my brother, I will take my brother in and I'm going to tell him off and I'm going to tell him this is not right. What he's doing is not right. And, you know, I feel like a lot of African countries politic that way. And unfortunately, it also then goes down to the state level in the sense that in Zimbabwe, I constantly write about how the politics in our country is very much, we are your fathers and your mothers and you are our children and we will tell you what to do. And they sort of like take that stance of saying that you guys don't know anything. We, we know what's best for you and we will represent you and we will be your leaders. Right. So now it's very much, now there's that relationship where like as a citizen, you're trying to break that barrier of how you've been kept out of politics and being told that this is just for the elderly. It's not a part of, you're not a part of this. They're not in a regional level. They're also dealing with each other like that. And ideally, person, like when I, I, I always think about it, like how best would I want South Africa to intervene? Because I've been a, I've always been a, a, a critic of Tabo Mbeki's foreign policy during his presidency. And that's, and it's led a lot of, it's led to a lot of questions. But I think for most people, if South Africa could take a very, a very um, uh, consistent stance against human rights violations, first of all, speaking out against that, and then understanding that the relationship, because for a lot of people, they think it's easy to just vote and vote out this institution, but it's hard to do that. And for a lot of calls have gone out that because there's so many close links between Zimbabwe and South Africa, especially economically, South Africa has the capacity to freeze people's bank accounts, take people's assets, you know, for example. So I, I, the, the, the real question of how best to intervene would obviously have to be within the confines of international, typical international relations law, because we know that a forceful approach will never work. Um, but there are so many other ways that maybe the institution that we are fighting back home can be crippled and that can be done even within South Africa. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. <laughs> yeah, it does. I think it was quite a big question to ask because like lots of, lots of state politicians are sitting there asking themselves the same question. So I kind of put you on the spot there, but thank you for that answer. I think that it was quite and made quite a lot of sense. And it also is just really pragmatic, Um, but also pragmatism doesn't always lead to things being easy to be done. Um, So I think, thanks for that. Uh, For Leonard, I'd like to ask, so in terms of what's happening in West Africa, right? So we have similar situations where you have states that are in conflict and regional bodies or I think continental bodies like the AU having to intervene. What does intervention look like there? Um, and has it been helpful? Um, can we use it in the case of South Africa and Zimbabwe or SADC and Zimbabwe? Um, yeah, that's a question. 
Well, it's very interesting when you speak about West Africa because um, it has been a historically shambolic uh, region in terms of, you know, it's politics, security, and economics. I mean, even, even that's by even African shambolic uh, um, standards. But um, when it concerns interventionism um, at the state level, at the interstate level, um, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, has actually been a vanguard, a, a harbinger of sorts um, on the global scene, not just in Africa, because um, in Liberia in the early during the, the Republic in the 90s, um, ECOMOG was the first regional force in the world to intervene in another state's conflict and then act as a stabilizing force. And you know, that just laid the foundation for you know, political and security um, interventions across the region. And you know, the AU, um, especially under the, um, the stewardship of uh, Secretary General Musa Farki, he's a career diplomat. He's really deferred, um, he really promotes multilateralism in the sense that, you know, they defer these matters to the um, regional bodies because they know best. And the AU, they'll come in with their, you know, um, various resources, be it at the human resource level, financial, um, to facilitate such interventions. But then um, in West Africa, and ECOWAS, I mean, we've seen um, in Gambia, in late 2006, I think late 2016, when um, the former president, Yaya Jame, he didn't want to leave office after um, he had lost an election. And in the lead up to it, Nigeria, which is the big brother in the region, they said, okay, you know what? We're gonna put our troops on, um, on standby. Senegal, which also has um, a similar, uh, in the way that um, Zimbabwe and um, South Africa relate, they have the same relation with Gambia and they put their troops on standby and they said, okay, you know what? If this deadline is passed and the president hasn't left power, we are going to send our troops, right? Now that's at the last level of, you know, using a military intervention. Now in both instances, when that instance now the president left, they negotiated for what well, he did, they didn't negotiate, but then he left and um, went to the exile in, I think, Equatorial Guinea. Now, currently, you have another social political crisis which is going on in Mali. And what's happening is that it's just like, well, not like Zimbabwe, but then it's been a social political crisis which has been going on for a decade where you have um, Mali, a, a good portion of the country is under, the, um, under attack by um, extremist groups and other forms of um, armed opposition. And you know the government hasn't been able to uh, uh, handle the matter, and now opposition and civil society movements—they've been uh, holding protests uh, for the past couple of months against uh, um, what they feel is a government ineptitude, as well as um, corruption and other um, issues which the government hasn't been able to uh, properly address. And just a couple of weeks ago, you had a delegation, firstly led by um, former uh, Nigerian President uh, Jukulok Jonathan. He led an ECOWAS fact-finding mission to try and propose you know, some sort of mediation between the various parties. And it wasn't just a scenario where he goes to the president and the ruling party and they discuss behind closed doors and we say, oh, we're doing this. No, they also went to the various stakeholders. They went to the civil society. They went to the, um, to the imams. They went to the, um, uh, to the opposition parties. And they brought them all together and they said, okay, these are the solutions that we want to be put forth, right? Or, and then after that, they went and provided the, um, the uh, um, the um, results on the fact-finding mission to the ECOWAS heads of state, and they carried out a five. There was a five-president delegation which went a couple of weeks ago to figure out, you know, with the opposition as well as the president, what is the way forward. Now it hasn't brought to an end the current, the ongoing crisis in Mali, but it just shows that, you know, in order for such 
you know, deep standing, deep seated and long, um, deep seated crises to be solved, it requires a multi platform and a multi faceted process, which involves not just envoys, because right now South Africa has sent Baleke Mbete to go and talk to, you know, the Zimbabwean authorities. Nah, that's not going to cut out. We saw Baleke Mbete couldn't even deal with Julius Malema and the EFF, you know. Now you have a scenario where you have very hardline leaders, and what you need is heads of state. You need people who are, you know, United Nations, because as well, when um, the ECOWAS heads of uh, states were coming through uh, with their um, missions, they also were accompanied by AU representatives, United Nations, um, La Francophonie as well. So uh, what I'm just trying to say is that, you know, in that part of the world where they have long-standing experience, they understand that, you know, a certain kind of um, uh, crisis, especially when it requires, involves heads of states, it requires like, um, likewise engagement. So yeah, that's just my two cents there with respect to what goes on in that part of the world. Great, thank you for that, Leonard. Um, and I think that the, like West Africa and also East Africa to an extent or all other parts of Africa that had independence way before us, right, have navigated the system of like democratic elections and um, conflict and authoritarianism and all of those things. Um, and that's why I think that the region is able to consolidate and help to solve issues. But I think that in SADC, it's very different, right? You have South Africa, which is the regional giant that has also just become independent, right? And is trying to navigate like its own democracy, its own politics, and is trying to understand itself as a regional giant and um, like move away from the apartheid kind of foreign policy um, so I think that that might be one of the things that are stopping regional action in the sad, like in Southern Africa. Um, Seho, Seho, can I just add, what's interesting is that you were saying that, you know, that even though the West African countries have had, you know, a longer independence experience, what's interesting is that in terms of, you know, democratic governance, they more or less have had the same um, amount of time. They have been, they've been, um, democracies, stable, de I wouldn't say stable democracies, but they've been electoral democracies for about the same time as South Africa. Because when you think about, for example, Nigeria, people forget that the only military rule only ended in 1999. A lot of these countries were in very unstable situations. Cote d'Ivoire, their political situation, which is now in up in the air because the president wants to go for a third term, you know, for all of the 2000s, they were in conflict, you know, so you can only maybe handpick a couple countries, maybe like Senegal, which really had their, you know, their political um, systems in order. So it's also been a learning process for them as well. So I don't think you, you might, I think you're giving too much credit in that regard to the countries in that region, because it's interesting that a lot of them were able to develop this interventionist experience while they were still under different forms of authoritarian rule. So that was just a side note. Awesome, thanks. But I also would say in terms of the effects of migration, Leslie kind of spoke about this initially in her statement, the issues of migration and like socioeconomic impact, I think in that region, because all of the conflict kind of stirred that movement of people and some of the challenges that result from that, um, I think that states had to, regardless of what kind of political situation they're in, that's something that they had to pay close attention to. So I would think that because of the conditions there it would prompt um, better action and like uh, a method and a process in that regard. So yeah, that's, that's the kind of thinking I, I was 
that's the kind of thought process I was on. Uh, Leslie? Oh, I was just going to come in on the point that you made. Um, it's something I'd actually jotted down as well when I was preparing for this, that, I mean, we understand uh, South Africa has had um, a history of not wanting to assume the hegemonic role in the region. And this is something that the apartheid state tried to assume. And there's this longstanding idea that South Africa should not force its ideology on Zimbabwe. But now when it's a case of human rights violations happening next door to you guys and you don't and then as a state you don't respond to that it leaves a lot to be questioned because ideally yes your own political ideologies should not be in like enforced on other people but we're talking about a fundamental thing like human rights violations the things that are happening currently in Zimbabwe are things that would not happen in this country, in South Africa, and would not be would not go unnoticed. So that's where the the confused. That's where a bit of like tension is now. That respect respect uh, it can be respected that maybe South Africa doesn't want to take that role and forces ideology on people. And then you look at um, it's the like a lot of uh, I think you've you've mentioned the Teho that and I think Leonard as well that you then look at how regionally it's the one country that is doing well and it's also now like fundamentally what we're saying is now we're looking at human rights people are you is the state going to remain quiet what does that then say about South Africa's own stance on human rights is it that human rights must only be um, maintained within South Africa or does that mean that when there's violations um, in neighboring countries, it's something to turn a blind eye to. So, yeah, I just wanted to emphasize that point. Thank you for that. Um, I think just one last thing I'd like to ask is what does external um, support and external mobilization look like? So to what extent can external actors help the situation in Zimbabwe? Right, so I can see everything that's happening on Twitter and that's raising awareness. And I think that in Zimbabwe, um, that's also helping people to um, continue their mobilization and like protests on the ground. I'm not sure if that's happening right now. Um, but also just, a, it's a big solidarity campaign that's online. So what I want to know is how do we move forward from that? How do we um, put into action some of the the ideas that are coming up online. How do we ask the government to take this more seriously and try to persuade the South African government to look at different strategies for um, handling this matter in Zimbabwe? Um, so Les, I'd like to ask if you have any input on that. And Leonard, if you have seen any way that non-state actors have been able to put pressure on the government to change their foreign policy directive, if that's been something that you've seen in your own research, that would be really interesting to hear about. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so for the big question of moving forward, how do we move forward? I will tell you as someone who's actively engaged in the current activism and who has been engaged in the past before, that's a question that a lot of people will not be able to answer, uh, talking about it from a citizen level. I think at most, everyone right now is just trying to break their silence because one of the reasons why what's the political impasse in Zimbabwe has managed to go on for so long is because people have been um, 
sort of um what's the wow i'm failing to find the right word any sort of any sort of criticism has been crushed by the government so the act of the act of speaking out the act of raising awareness the hashtags the hashtags free zimbabwe free hope well um free tt naming people and speaking out about it is or it's something that a lot of people are only managing to do now because silence is something that has prevailed in zimbabwe um so when it comes to moving forward from the interactions that i've had with people from what i've seen is that a lot of people don't they don't have they don't know yet what the bigger picture is in terms of um no i want to rephrase that they know they want change to happen how it's going to happen is something else and it's something that i feel on a, on a personal level a lot of people are still trying to figure out right then at a state level what we're hoping for is collaboration with opposition parties collaboration with other non-state actors that are operating within Zimbabwe and a lot of the calls that people have made have also been to ask other countries and other non-state actors in other countries to apply a lot of pressure in Zimbabwe. For example, there was a petition going around to have Nick Mangwana's citizenship revoked by the British government. Um, because some of the, what we've noticed also with some of the exposés that have happened, which is one part of the reason why Mr. Hopewell is in jail right now, is because people have investigated and seen the ties that the corruption has in Zimbabwe and how some of this, some of the state funds are being externalized to other countries. And another example is how South Africa has played a role in this. It's be, it's be, it's basically been a haven for um, looted funds. There are so many people with properties, so many government officials with properties here. Some of them even have citizenship here and are able to externalize that their funds. So I think what people are expecting is a little little bit of response like in terms of that like revoking people's citizenship and freezing their accounts or revoking their properties i feel like it's something that would then put pressure for them to act but as far as we're concerned that's really what we expect south africa to do and when we, when it comes to the bigger state interventions i don't think there's anyone who's calling for violence or calling for military intervention or calling for war but we still feel like a sort of level of sanctions could apply a bit of pressure but the bigger the bigger question of how to move forward the answers are still also being debated but i still feel i i'm speaking now from a personal level and as someone who's watching what's happening on the ground a lot needs to happen thank you for that leslie um leonard please yeah, um, I can really just hear that Leslie was speaking from very, um, you know, a deep, a deep space. You know, I also come from a country which has a very strong authoritarian past. Um, where I come from in Cameroon, also is having uh, there's a conflict going on, and you know, it all stems from people having long-standing grievances. And you know, you were trying to you know excuse your constitutional right you know to protest and you know express your grievances because our electoral systems don't enable to do that. And then, you know, the state, you know, security systems, as well as the um, affiliated governments, you know, do as much as possible to uh, suppress that. Because I know I read it, I took the time to read the Zimbabwean constitution. And I know there are four articles um, which um, really speak to just the guarantee of human rights. So this is a very, you know, it's, it's what the state is doing is essentially not just a violation of people's human rights, but it's a, by violation of the supreme state of the state governing document. And when you have such scenarios and when you're having 
a, a government like the ZANU-PF government, which has been doing this for generations, there is no clear cut, there's no clear cut um, solution. Um, What's interesting for me, though, is that I look at what has happened with respect to um, my research in uh, democratic transitions, and you look what has happened in, you know, southern Europe, in parts of Africa, uh, Latin America, because you have, you know, like we said, a highly involved security apparatus in the day-to-day um, -day governance of Zimbabwe. And what's interesting is that right now in ZANU-PF, there's so many factions, and even within the military, all is not right. And in terms of engagement, they're obviously hardliners, they are moderates, they're all softliners. So even though they're all playing the same game, they're all not playing it the same way. So I think with respect to engagement, whoever is an external engage, whoever is doing external, um, whichever, whoever is doing the facilitation, whatever, it's South Africa, SADC, um, and it's interesting because I know the SADC, um, is it the Peace and Security? Sorry, which body is it? Um, yeah, the security organ. Yeah, the peace and security organ. I think Zimbabwe is actually the chair. And what's interesting is that I know a couple months ago, Zimbabwe is actually trying to negotiate uh, or trying to facilitate talks between the DRC and Zambia with respect to a border dispute that they had. So that means they actually have people who have that skill to be able to engage, right? It's key for whoever is an external partner to identify, okay, who is somebody that can be able to, we can get some light on. Is there somebody who can, we can say is that, you know, okay, you know, maybe they're not fully behind all this oppression that's going on. I think, Sikho, we've had this discussion. You look for the weakest link. You look for the person who might be able to smile a bit more, be it in the military circles, be it in the government circles, because it's not a, you know, it's not a linear kind of situation. It's multifaceted, right? Um, then another thing which needs to be done is that there needs to be honesty, first and foremost, like for example, from South Africa, and what kind of engagement they are carrying out. Because, you know, throughout we've been hearing that, oh, it's an intervention, it's an intervention. Whatever South Africa has done with respect to Zimbabwe is not an intervention because the only intervention that, let me give an example of what when South African foreign intervention was, say, I think 1997, it was in, I don't know, 1996, 1997, during the Mandela presidency, when they sent the army into Lesotho after a disputed election. That is an intervention. That is where you come in as a, as, as a power or as a regional body on your own terms and you say, hey, this is what we're doing, all right? And you follow it, and unless you follow it, we're going to continue going on our path. What is happening now with South Africa is that you know, they're sending envoys. Envoys are carrying out fact-finding missions. And then those fact-finding missions, they go and they come back. And in the ANC or the government, you know, they give advice in that regard. Going forward, or you have, for example, Thabo Mbeki with the government and national unity, that came about because of facilitations that were going on between ZANU-PF and, um, and MDC and the Mbeki-led government, right? And, you know, Further, further beyond what needs to go on now is some sort of mediation because now, and the mediation shouldn't, as I said, what is key is broad-based stakeholder engagement. You can't have a scenario where Baleke Mbeke is going and she's only talking to, you know, the ZANU-PF people. She's only talking to Nelson Chamisa. There are so many forces, the religious groups, the business association, the you know so many the women's groups there's so many stakeholders who need to be discussed with youth groups as well because the youth make up the biggest um uh part of the population in the country and nobody's talking about that 
there needs to be honesty in the way engagement is being done with respect to who is being engaged with, as well as um, who's being engaged with, what are the terms of the engagement, as well as the topics which are being discussed. And I think only then can you now really come up with some real progress with respect to the situation at hand. Mm, thank you for that, Leonard. I thought that was quite um, extensive and quite detailed as well. So thank you. Um, I would just like to ask for your closing statements because our time is um, up. Uh, thank you very much for the conversation. Um, I have certainly learned a lot and I've got a lot of key takeaways from this um, that I hope that other people can hear and also it, it just helps them to start thinking themselves like um, for some interventions, for some future actions that can be taken. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate you and would appreciate some closing statements. So anything that hasn't been said or that we missed um, and then just close off. So can we go with Leslie since um, Leonard has just spoken? Okay, um, once again, thank you so much for, for this platform and just, I, I appreciate um, Leonard's input, uh, also considering that he's coming from a region that also has had its issues. Um, his input is very much invaluable and it's a lot to consider and it's, it's um, solutions, I mean, ideas on solutions that could help. I just wanted to close off by saying what's important right now is that for a lot of people, um, for a lot of Zimbabweans, I think it's now a case of just con completely removing ZANU-PF as a political party because we've also now seen that even with a different leadership, there's still a fundamental um, value. Well, there's certain there's certain fundamental characteristics of the party that will continue to prevail even with a different face. So now it's now trying to figure out how that would happen, the removal of of Zanupia, because for a lot of people, it's that when 2017 happened and we saw Robert Mugabe removed from uh, the presidency. It was almost like giving it a chance. We knew that it is a coup that's not a coup, but giving it a chance. But what we have also now gone to see is that fundamentally, the values of ZANU-PF are the same, violence and suppression. So at this point, honestly speaking, we, we just, as a movement, there's hope that we can apply a lot more pressure and continue speaking. Very, very basic. We want no corruption, no looting, um, funds to be injected into the healthcare system. We are currently going through a pandemic that's affecting the response to this. And because of the nature of corruption and looting, even people's access to healthcare has been limited. So all are nice if people could just join us in the awareness and listening to our stories and everything that we're saying, because you can, South Africa can, does many invoices says at once this the position that does not have any regard for human rights and the entire institution just needs to go zanu pf just needs to go thank you okay um yes thanks leslie and um just you know you know that you know the zimbabweans have put zanu pf out of power once in 2008 but then we saw the reaction to that so you know i think you also have to understand that it's not just about the party but then the affiliated structures your security establishment those are the places where the real problem is because, you know, they also have vested interests across 
all sectors of the Zimbabwean society. But um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you first and foremost for you know this platform. You talked to us about this and you know taking up space and especially with these difficult uh, circumstances we find ourselves in, um, access to information hasn't been as, uh, 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 we've not been able to pursue it in the formats we normally would have liked to. So thanks for giving us um, the, uh, the ability to just exchange our ideas and our views. And um, I just wanna thank uh, my Zimbabwean friends who uh, you know, enlightened me on this because as I said, I'm only a passerby in this region. Um, I don't and I can't um, claim to have monopoly of knowledge or opinion about this because what's happening in Zimbabwe is not my lived experience. You know, we've seen from when I've been an undergrad from up until now my PhD level, you know, it's the same stories and, you know, people talking about every, and you hear about Zimbabwe, but then you don't know that, you know, it's, those are people's livelihoods. People have lost their livelihoods. People's dreams have been shattered just because of, you know, a few greedy individuals. So it's very important that, you know, that awareness continues to be created about the situation at hand. And there are no easy solutions or answers to everything that's going on. But then when you talk and you talk more, and as you said, and you pick out, you end up picking out what you think can be good. You look at what's been done in the past, which was done incorrectly, do as much as possible not to repeat it. And then we move forward. But um, yeah, pretty interesting. Everything that's going on, especially that, you know, it just shows that how resilient the Zimbabwean people are, that even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of a crippling, another crippling economic crisis, they still stand head above shoulders to demand what is theirs. And that's for their human rights and civil liberties to be respected. Great. Thanks so much, guys. I think that was an amazing discussion. Um, and I also just, your passion, your individual passion for um the region and your respective regions and the kind the wealth of knowledge that you have was awesome to um encounter and i'm so glad that i had you on the podcast to to chat thanks so much guys really 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 appreciate it and Merci beaucoup. hope that you you're welcome keep well awesome awesome <laughs>